Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to episode 163 of the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I'm talking to Beth Kempton all about how to be a fearless writer. But first to last week's question, which was, how do you approach editing? Catherine O'Sullivan-Brown said, I write my draft, run it through ProWritingAid to catch spelling and grammar stuff, and then email it to my editor. When I get it back, I look at her comments in the margin, where there's maybe an inconsistency, a plot hole, or I've swapped guys' limbs. Uh, I I write reverse harem. It's hard keeping track of certain limbs in certain scenes with six characters. (laughs) Oh my God, I'm impressed. I could not keep track of that. Uh, I correct these lapses. Then I click the uh, nice accept changes at the top of Word. That makes all the nasty red letters and squiggles go away. Editing done. Modern Wordfare, (laughs) I nearly got that wrong, uh, says, loved this episode and I feel you with the editing process, going through exactly the same thing at the moment and it was so encouraging not to feel alone. Karen Heenan said, this was a great episode. I love Sarah. I approach editing with grim determination and a large cup of coffee. I actually enjoy editing more than writing, but sometimes it takes convincing to get me started. But it's the only way to wrangle a sprawling manuscript into something that resembles the shiny idea I had. Okay, so thank you very much to everybody who commented. I really appreciate it. And uh, I love hearing all of your answers. So this week's question is, what country is top of your bucket list? And this is kind of a nod to uh, the guest today, who, uh, as I record this, is now uh, in Japan. So, uh, yeah, let me know what your favourite country, or not favourite, but what country is top of your bucket list. The book recommendation of the week this week is Quit by Annie Duke. This is all about when you should quit how you should quit, why you should quit, how to, how tools and resources to help you decide when the time is right to quit. And it blew my mind. It's quite corporate. It does come at it from a kind of, yeah, a big corporate uh, perspective, but it's full of scientific research as well. And oh my God, I loved it. It blew my mind. And a big shout out to Joanna Penn who recommended that I read it. Thank you so much. It is definitely going to go down as one of my favorite books this year. So I highly, highly recommend that you read Quit by Annie Duke. So in personal news uh, and updates this week, I am only a few days out from the last time I recorded. I think I recorded on Friday the... Friday the 28th and it's now the 3rd so I'm only a few I'm not quite a week since the last one and it's been a frustrating week because of course I had the half term week off and I made doubly sure that I had you know done all of the admin done all of the emails I'd caught up with everything before I went away and I tried very hard to keep on top of um, just in the evenings once the kiddo was asleep I tried very hard to sort of keep on on top of anything that I could get rid of out of my inbox but I've come back and uh, most of this week has been spent doing admin again a fucking again and I look I try very hard not to ever moan (laughs) but I'm really sick of it (laughs) I just want to edit the fucking book and uh, yeah so I'm a bit grumpy today (laughs) 
I'm never grumpy, but today I'm grumpy. And uh, so, yes, I promise that next week I shall be less grumpy. But I think we're all allowed a grumpy day once in a while, right? Uh, so, yes, I am trying very hard to edit. I've, I have done a bit of editing this week, but I ended up spending like three days editing one chapter, which is not great for all of my strengths, which like to drive forward at quite a pace. So I have been frustrated with the book this week, frustrated with my pace, frustrated with the admin. And uh, yeah, I think the irony of the fact that I just read a book about called Quit. <laughs> Clearly, I need to quit doing some things uh, and uh, quit prioritizing fucking emails and admin, I think is probably what I need to do. But anyway, uh, so yes, that is where I'm at. Um, it is thir yeah Thursday the 3rd of November. <sighs> and basically the next week we'll be trying very hard to do the, um, get the edit as finished as possible. I don't think it's going to get done. My, my date of where I wanted to finish was the 13th of November. Um, th that's already the first kind of delayed date, if that makes sense. So it's the new date. And I think I'm all, I think I'm going to go over it again. So, um, I'm a little bit demoralized if I'm honest. Um, yeah. I don't know. I'm finding it tough today. It's not helped by the fact that I'm tired as well. Other things I am meant to be working on the next nonfiction, but of course I can't do that until I finish this edit. So uh, I just got to plow through on that. And then I do have a fun day booked out uh, for next week. So on Wednesday next week, I am popping to London to see Holly Seddon. She is a psychological uh Mm, psych yeah psychological thriller crime crime psychological crime thriller writer well, you know the genre I mean uh, I met her at Jericho Writers and we are going uh, on a tour of some abandoned undergrounds and yeah just generally nerding out for the day so I'm really looking forward to that that will be a nice day out and a nice break and then at the weekend I think it's next weekend it might be the weekend after no it's the weekend after never mind <laughs> but I will be going on a writing retreat at some point this month as well just over the weekend uh, with some writer pals as well which I'm super excited for so uh, that will be lovely but uh, no that is just uh, that is a couple of weeks away <laughs> so yeah it's business as usual for the next sort of 10 days or so just trying to get this bloody book done and in between I'm getting odd bits of sections of the audiobook edited as well I'm so I'm kind of cross with myself today. I don't know if you guys can hear it. Uh, but yeah, I'm very frustrated and irritated with myself that I am just not getting everything done. And I'm really tired. And <sighs> I've been trying to work late, which is obviously making me tired. But also, like, I just want to get the work done. So yeah, anyway, I'm going to stop talking because I like to keep these shows positive. <laughs> So the rebel of the week this week is Jackson Hollingsworth. And Jackson said, at one of my old high schools, the teachers didn't understand that my older sister was an actor and therefore wasn't available to volunteer with some of the school's programs in the evenings. They decided to take their grudge at, against her out on me as well. One of the teachers said I hadn't turned in a large amount of assignments and therefore wouldn't pass his class and graduate to the next year. 
My mum showed me the list of assignments that I supposedly didn't turn in. I went in my room, came out with the entire stack of assignments I had not only turned in, but received back with notes from the teacher saying good job and 98% A+. We showed these to the school administration. My grade was changed to what it should be and my mum pulled me out of the school. My sister wasn't pulled out because it was her senior year and there wasn't much time left to finish it out. But she graduated from that school as a valedictorian and is now a badass lawyer. Ah, I love that. I love that you not only had all of the assignments, but the feedback too, and you could shove it in their faces. What a brilliant... Also, what a spiteful fucking teacher. Who the fuck are these people allowed to teach kids that are this spiteful against children? Like, what the fuck? Anyway... If you would like to be a Rebel of the Week, please do send in your story. It can be any kind of rebellion. Something big, something small, something school days. Uh, It could be a parent's rebellion, a grandma rebellion. It could be a pet rebellion. You can email your Rebel story to Becca over on rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com. No new patrons this week, but I did want to say a gigantic thank you to everybody who supports this show. I don't know if I make it clear enough, but... The support really does mean everything to me. Um, I it, it helps me run the show. It pays for my time. It helps to pay for the kit and the running and the hosting of the show. And more than that, it actually like makes me feel like it is worth doing and that you guys want it. And so I just wanted to say thank you, especially in the current climate. I really, really appreciate it. If you would like to support the show and get early access to all of the episodes as well as bonus content, then you can from as little as $2 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. One last little uh, plug. Susan Dennard is a YA author. She's a traditionally published author, but every year in conjunction with NaNoWriMo, she hosts The Mighty Pens. Now, The Mighty Pens is a um, charity-run event where writers write and they ask their friends, families and colleagues, etc. to donate money when they hit specified word goals. Now, if you join in and uh, you work with the Mighty Pens, then uh, there are some prizes for for participants and I have donated quite a few different prizes. So I'm going to leave a link in the show notes so that you can go and have a look at what Susan and her team are doing doing uh, with the Mighty Pens, but it's all in conjunction with Nano. So I, I know lots of you are doing NaNoWriMo anyway. So yeah, go and have a listen. A listen? <laughs> go and have a read. Okay, that's enough from me this week. Let's get on with the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I am joined by Beth Kempton. Beth is a Japanologist, self, self-help author, and writer mentor, whose books have been translated into more than 25 languages. Beth has been a student of Japanese life for a quarter of a century and has two degrees in Japanese. She is also a qualified yoga teacher and Reiki master, trained in the Japanese tradition in Tokyo. She lives a slow-ish life by the sea in rural Devon, England, with her husband, Mr. K, and their two young girls. Hello and welcome. Hello, hello. Well, thank you for that introduction. No, thank, to be here. <laughs> thank you for, for coming on. Um, 
Before I ask you about all of the good stuff, I am fascinated by the Japan stuff. So Japan is actually number one on my bucket list of places to go. But the problem is the reason I haven't gone is because I I don't want to just go for like a week or two. I like want to go for like a month or six weeks, like in the school holidays. But also that's really expensive. (laughs) So I haven't gone yet because I'm waiting to like that until I've got like a chunk of money and we can go and do all of the things. But I have always been fascinated by Japan. So I just wondered like, what, like why Japan for a start? (laughs) How did that happen? (laughs) Well, if you like, we could turn this into a one hour introduction to how to travel in Japan. If you like, (laughs) And, And I'm curious to ask you first, if I can, why Japan for you? That's really interesting. So I'm not sure, but ever since I was a child, I have been fascinated by like Asian culture and history in particular. So like a lot of my favorite movies are uh, like the dubbed um, films. So uh, House of Flying Daggers, Hero Warrior, um, Lady Vengeance. I know, I think they're more set in China, uh, but also um, The Last Samurai, films like that. And I am just deeply fascinated. I'm fascinated by the mindset, the calmness that just like, I feel like it's a lot of calm. I'm also fascinated by like the architecture. Architecture is something I'm really fascinated by, but like not in a, like I have no qualifications. I've never like studied it or anything, but like the, the, a a series of books that I have an idea about magic being derived from architecture and stuff. So like, yeah, I've always been really interested and where we got married they um had a the reason we chose it is because they had a japanese prayer hut um and so we were supposed to get married in front of this hut and then it fucking rained so we had to get married inside uh but they had japanese plants asian plants um and sort of oriental gardens all my uh, flowers on the wedding day on the tables were oriental so i don't know it has just it's just something that really appeals to me. I'm fascinated by every facet and aspect of their their culture and way of life. And I just think it's beautiful. And so I want to learn more about it, basically. So interesting. Japan seems to have this way of getting under people's skin and different different ways for different people. And actually, I was the complete opposite. I had no almost zero knowledge about it except for having you know done judo when I was about seven, just because <laughs> it was something that you did in my town. Um, I, I didn't know anything about it. And I was going to go and do economics at university and be an accountant. And then I had this strange experience on a boat when I was 17 that kind of woke me up to, wait a minute, it's a big world out there and you can have adventures if you want and you don't have to do this. It, the only options to you are not the ones that have been told to you. You can go and discover things for yourself. And I came back from that trip, which was perfectly timed between the two years of sixth form or high school um, just before I was supposed to send in my university application and decided I didn't want to study economics at university, had no idea what I wanted to do, but thought the best way to go on an adventure at the time, the government used to give you a grant for that, so basically paid adventure, would be to study a language. But I hadn't done any languages at A level. I was, you know, maths, physics, all those kinds of things, economics. Um, And so I had to pick from well, at the time were quite 
obscure languages, obscure enough that you didn't need a qualification to go and study them at university. And so really it came down to Russian, Chinese, Arabic and Japanese as the options available at the universities I wanted to go to. And so I did eeny, meeny, miny, mo, and no. I landed in Japanese. <laughs> but, but even though it was so random, I, I don't think it was random. I think I could have started anywhere and somehow landed on that because it just feels like it was absolutely the right thing for me, which doesn't mean it was easy. I mean, my first year at university was so incredibly difficult and I, I'd never, I didn't really know how to learn a language. And so I just, I have a good memory. So I don't think anyone realized quite how bad I was because I could just memorize the conversations in our textbook and regurgitate them in class. But then when it came to the exams, I did really badly, nearly failed everything. Um, and they said, oh, we don't think we should send you to Japan. And I was like, hang on a minute. That's the whole point. Like, <laughs> and so I begged them and they let me go. And we actually went in our second year rather than third years, which was lucky. Um, and I was put in um, with a homestay family in Kyoto who spoke no English at all and really just kind of thrust in at the deep end. They had strong Kyoto accents and it was, and, and not much sympathy from, from my terrible Japanese. And so I just had to go for it. And as soon as I really applied myself, realizing it was kind of a matter of survival, I just completely fell in love with it. The, you know, the, the artfulness of the characters and the, gentle ways of so many people that I met, the calmness that you mentioned that is absolutely there. And, the, you know, Tokyo is one of the busiest cities in the world. I lived there for a few years, but there were just these amazing pockets of calm and also just a sense of calmness that doesn't, it's got an amazing vibe, but it's not the kind of always on craziness that you might sense in, in and, and, and is the thing that makes some other cities what they are for sure. Um, it, it is absolutely fascinating. And so, I just got more and more interested in it. And um, I think I didn't want to go and study like history in depth or old literature or something. So I just kept studying the language. That was the best way to, to kind of keep going. And I've just met so many incredible people. I mean, there, there's when we think about Japan as when you haven't been there, there, there's so many really striking images. I think that's why so often there's these stereotypical pictures of, you know, the bullet train in front of Mount Fuji or cherry blossoms or whatever, they're beautiful. Absolutely. Um, and I think it's easier to show those than to try and describe the essence of, I don't want to say the essence of it because I'm not sure there is one and who am I to say what that is, but the essence of the impact it can have on you. And I think what I realized with the more books that I write that I have absorbed by osmosis, a particular way of seeing the world and walking through the world without losing my own culture, I've been influenced in a very gentle way that has made me a real seeker of beauty in the world, I think, always, and much more accepting of many things and very much in tune with the seasons. And I've, I've learned so much from there. And as a place to travel, it's absolutely Wonderful. Um, I'm actually going very soon. By the time anyone's listening to this, I will be back in Japan oh, for the wow. first time since before the pandemic. I'm so excited. And even though I've got two small children, I've managed to wangle more than a month. So um, I have the most wonderful itinerary. I've been struggling for a while trying to decide between um, 
setting up a lot of meetings that can like interviews and things because I'm researching my next book um which is really important sometimes it takes a long time and you have to go through lots of people to get to certain people but also there's so much happens serendipitously I want to leave enough space for that so it's been a really interesting um job plotting and planning but I'm spending probably less than 20 percent of my time in big cities and the rest of it is in the countryside which is as yet mostly undiscovered by uh, yeah. tourists from outside of Japan. And there was just so much to see and do and experience and just such wonderful, welcoming people. Of course, I, I don't want to generalize about everyone. Every country has all sorts of people, but just having traveled more than 50 countries in the world, there, there is a hospitality in Japan that I haven't experienced in the same way. There's wonderful hospitality in places like Thailand as well, but it, it's just what just lovely. And I would say the one thing I would encourage you to do is go for as long as you can. Absolutely. Um, and spend time in the countryside so and don't rush from yeah. place to place. So that's my priority. I like it's great to visit the cities, but I actually want to see the countryside like and the yeah. the more undiscovered bits. Those are the bits that I'm really because that's that's the only way you can see culture. I think really, truly see like um natural culture because in city it's always such a um amalgamation of people and you know because tourists and people expats and you know so I always I love cities um but yeah I'm excited to see the countryside too so hopefully one day I will will get to go are your kids going with you as well not this time at some point we were supposed to all go um and we cancelled on, I think it was the 6th of February, 2020. Ah. So we basically, we had a sense of the pandemic before it became a thing here. And um, a young young man in Tokyo, in Kyoto, sorry, had just contracted COVID from some Chinese tourists in the place that we were going to with oh. our small children. And we live in a community of old people here in the countryside. So we didn't, you know, at the time it was a bit like the plague. You didn't be the want to be the one who brought it back. And so mm. we cancelled that trip. Um, but we we will take them for sure. Mm. And and I'd love to take them often, you know, yeah, once yeah. every year, every couple of years, so that it becomes something that's in them as well. Do you still speak Japanese? Yeah, it's rusty. Oh, so it's rusty cool. after the pandemic for sure. But <laughs> you know, setting up all my meetings and everything—it's been just wonderful to get back into it. And a lot of the people, a lot of people in the countryside, people I'll be spending time with, don't speak any English whatsoever. I mean, that's so cool. Learn at school, but I'm you know, talk to a lot of much much older people. I'm going. I'm my next book's about what what it means to live a good life, and I'm talking to some very old people who mm-hmm. who absolutely do not speak English. So um, it, it's by necessity, and it's it's such a joy to get back into it. And I always feel like a student, you know, never, I, I have been more fluent in the past when I just finished my master's and all of yeah. that and was, or yeah. living and working there. Um, but the, it's so good to have the excuse of a book to dive back into yeah. the, the particular topics you're interested in and all that. I think that's one of the great joys of writing books, actually. You can make anything an excuse, right? Yeah. Yeah. You re- yeah. You really can. You really can. Plus, it's a tax tax write off, so win win. And <laughs> um, all right. So, what was like your biggest lesson or the biggest mark that your time in Japan like had on you? What was the biggest takeaway that you took from from all the time that you've spent there? Well, I think as a someone who would definitely call themselves a non linguist before university level. Um, I learned that 
learning a language can make a huge difference to experiences of travel and also just your experience of life, like trying to see see the world through other people's eyes. And if you do that only in your own language, there's there's an awful lot to learn for sure, but it's different. Language has so many layers and um, it's it's I think it's very difficult to get to know another culture without the language, without any level of the language. Um, and it's just such a wonderful experience to um, connect with other people in their language. So that was a, something I don't think I ever thought would be something I would know about. And then I did. And, and I don't speak any other languages. It's just Japanese. But um, that was wonderful. And then I think in terms of life lessons, it's definitely connected to my second book was called Wabi Sabi, which is this um, interesting word that every Japanese person I've ever spoken to knows intuitively, but it's not in the Japanese dictionary and it's not slang. So I can't think of a word in English that is fundamental to the way we see life and experience life, but isn't in the dictionary. So that in itself is interesting. Um, And as as always, being humble, who am I as an English person to define a word that doesn't have a definition? But um, I spent that book exploring what wabi-sabi is, and there was a, a real misunderstanding of it in the West. Um, it was seen as a way, uh, really an adjective to describe objects. And at the same time that my book came out, it was wabi-sabi, the term was chosen as a global design trend, which is just ridiculous <laughs> because Japanese people don't use it as an adjective in, in their own language. So um, it kind of just been stolen and used in that way, which is fine if people come to understand it as a particular thing. But it felt to me like there was something in this term, which was really important to a lot of the things I loved about Japan and a lot of things that I've learned from Japan. And in essence, it's really um about an appreciation of the impermanent, imperfect and incomplete nature of everything. Um, So it is connected to beauty, um, beauty that reminds us of those things, um, the passing of time and um, all things like that. And also in terms of life lessons, it's that impermanence is just one of the most important truths, I think, for us to remember. It helps us accept what happens it helps us let go of stuff it helps us appreciate the cycles of nature and our own mortality um, which is just one of the most powerful things to contemplate I think it makes you realize what matters what doesn't matter um, and also how things all things arise and dissipate the hard stuff and the good stuff you know so makes you the, the old adage of this too shall pass is absolutely true but also the good stuff will pass and the good people will go and, you know, so treasuring those things. So is it like one of those moments where you feel very small? So like, for example, I uh, went to um, Nepal and trekked up to Mount Everest base camp and then we summited a mountain sort of in front of Everest as you can describe it. And then we got up at like three o'clock in the morning and it was misty and cold and 
we got to the top of this, scrabbled literally to the top of this mountain. And then like the heavens cleared, which was the first time in a month that the skies cleared. And we just had this glorious view of the, 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 the peak of Everest. And we all sat there in silence for about an hour, just looking at this mountain and realizing how small we were and how insignificant. Is it that kind of, is that like an example of that it's the kind of awe right yeah and we just like you realize that you know well in that moment you realize you're very small that this mountain has been here for millions of years yeah (laughs) we're here for like two seconds and it's, it's like you know looking up at the stars on a completely clear night and you just think like yeah you're just yeah you are you are awed by the infinite planet the infinite infinite universe and and just the the tiny insignificant blip that we are here for I suppose in a way is that kind of yeah it's definitely kind of connected there's another word in um in Japanese connected to another kind of beauty um yugen which might be closer to that um but I think that Japanese beauty has kind of lots of different layers to it and I say Japanese beauty I mean ideas in Japanese language and culture connected to aesthetics is better way to say it um which is not just about what something looks like it's about depth beneath that and the impact it has on you mm-hmm. as the observer which is clearly what something that was going on for you there this natural beauty was having an effect on you um, and I think that's just that's amazing and it's so important for us to recognize when we're having that experience and also to remember we can have experiences like that when we're eating an apple, we don't have to be climbing a mountain. It's just that we rush through life so fast and don't take the time often just to realize that it's completely crazy. There's, you know, on this spinning planet in, and like you say, we're, we're tiny and almost insignificant. And yet we can also have a huge impact on things and the life around us and there's so much that we don't know and it's so interesting and so when you know someone sends you an annoying email it's like it really doesn't matter like it really doesn't matter and I think that's one of the things that I have learned in a very roundabout way because things are not black and white in Japan and a lot of things are roundabout and layered up and not all said a lot is of what's in the unsaid um, and so that's quite difficult to explain. Um, but really, I think, you know, life is just this incredible mystery. Um, and, and remembering that can help us deal with a lot of so much of our stress comes from tiny day to day things that really don't matter. Um, and also this crazy obsession we have with status in you know it's just we're just doing so much damage in so many ways um and and when we reconnect to that you know that mountain and that nature and that you know it's very simple you're just sat there with your rucksack having a cup of tea and of course you know thanks you've got a rucksack thanks to all, all the good things that have happened you know with industrial revolution and all of that but you know when it comes it's so interesting how interesting how all the things are connected um but also we we really it, we really do have the tools within ourselves to to not get so bothered about stuff which leaves us a lot more headspace and heart space to ponder the interesting questions about life which i think feeds into writing whatever you're writing about because ultimately everything 
is a story. Everything is an expression of human, the human condition or experience in, in the world. I mean, everything is. And so the more we can just drop those things and let go of those, um, I think the easier it is to do things like write and other kinds of creations in the world. And that is, that is such a joyful way of spending your days, right? I know lots of other things come with it. But. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I kind of skipped over uh, asking you to tell everyone about your journey, but I, I feel like we covered some of that earlier stuff. But is that, how did you get to writing? From how did you get, what, what was your journey from studying Japanese uh, to, to like being an author? Is Well, it's basically a rebellion against society. You'll be glad to hear. <laughs> In some ways, I've been very academic and always like interest. I've always been interested in business and how the world works and things. So for the 10 years after um, graduating from uni, I spent a lot of time um some of it using Japanese, some of it not. Um, I worked for UNICEF. I worked with big companies um, on corporate social responsibility. Um, and also in between, I spent a lot of time interpreting for elite athletes at the World Games, at the Olympic Games, all, all the big events around the world for Japanese athletes in the UK or for um, English-speaking athletes in big events in Japan. And so I've it was a lot of what I did in that time doesn't really have anything to do with what I do now, but it was an amazing introduction to the big wide world. And then I got to a point where um, about 12 years ago, I was working on England's bid to hold, to host the FIFA World Cup, um, which was, is about to be held in Qatar. So originally when we started out with the bid, we were bidding for the 2018 World Cup, which went to Russia and the 2022 World Cup, which went to Qatar. Um, and we put together an incredible bid. I was responsible for the global legacy plans for that bid. Um, shows you your work, your studies can take you anywhere, right? What's that got to do with the Japanese? Um, and we, we would have just done an amazing job with the World Cup and done some really good stuff for children um, in terms of, of access to sport and things all around the world. Um, and we found out that our, we basically a, a bunch of old white guys get to decide and um we got two votes oh my went out in the first round yeah <laughs> and i found out afterwards that there was an well most of them are either the ones that the there's almost none of them still working in football some of them being investigated by um the fbi um or the is there an international version of the FBI? Not sure. Um, anyway, um, by the American authorities, there have been... Interpol. People, oh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure who is it. <laughs> some people who found out that bad people did stuff like take bribes and things like that. And it was basically just absolutely disgusting, the process. And I was in a position in the world of sport where I felt like I could have done a lot of good in the world and helps particularly children to achieve their potential through the, the network that I had at that point and the job that I had, except the people who were in charge were just self-interested, interested in money and um, not a lot else. And I, I just, it was, it was a combination of that and me having my own um, kind of creative, 
I don't want to say creative awakening, but I, I went on an art retreat in America and was just like, boom, this is amazing. This community of creative women painting for, you know, it was just really strange, like a perfect storm of things happening over here. Me, me going, there are other ways of doing things that is not the big commercial world. And over here going, there's some really bad problems in the commercial world that I don't want to be part of. And so I founded my company, which is called Do What You Love, um, and started helping people to navigate change and do more of what they love. Um, it sounds quite random, but it's really not. It really came out of a lot of my friends have said to me, um, all, all through since uni for those you know 10 years or so afterwards, I, I traveled all over the world and I met some amazing people and they were like, you're so jammy. You're so lucky. You always have these most extraordinary experiences, most of which you don't seem to pay for. And I don't know, how does that work? Like, what, what is it that you're doing that's different to us? You know, we went to the same uni, did this, you know, whatever. And I realized it was to do with a sense of adventure and just following my heart and choosing things that were interesting and asking big questions and trying to find answers um, and, you know, building relationships with interesting people. And so I turned that into an online course at a time that nobody was really doing online courses, especially not courses about how to quit your job and do what you love. I mean, 12 years ago, this is, you know, there wasn't even an Instagram or anything at that point. Um, and I've, yeah, I've been doing it for all that time. And the first six years, I was quite, I was behind the scenes a lot. I taught some of my own courses, but I also built some partnerships where I was the producer. Um, and some, some of those are still going and still thriving, but I was very much behind the scenes, strategist, all of that. Um, and then I got to a point about six years in where I had one child and I was very heavily pregnant with my second. And I basically had a meltdown on, on my bedroom floor. Like it's a really good way to start a nonfiction book. Lots of non lots of people start a nonfiction book with a bedroom floor meltdown, but you know, it's a good opportunity to lie there and think about things. Um, and I basically, even though I had all these tools to, to and I had spent my life choosing very consciously what I wanted to do at some point as the business took off, I became distracted by what was making money and doing more of that. And also I, you know, I had these partnerships. So I had to some extent had to do um, also be guided by what other people wanted to do. And I took on too much and I never said no. And I had completely forgotten about my own creative output. I was just servicing other people's ideas for business and things like that really um and when I had this bedroom floor moment I had this flashback of myself doing all these crazy things I'd done um you know going to Antarctica and being in Bhutan and all these things and I it, it sounds kind of cliche but I, I realized that there was this person that was me who I've totally lost sight of who who felt free and that's how I, you know, that time I'd had that moment on the boat when I was 17, I think that's what it was. I felt free really for the first time because I'd been so fixated on this particular academic path. Um, and I wanted to feel free again. And I, and it didn't make any sense to me because I had all these tools. My company was called Do What You Love. And here I was feeling completely trapped. Um, what, how does that happen? Um, and so I decided to take five months off maternity leave. And just my baby was born and I walked up and down the beach thinking about this question of freedom and how, how we get trapped and how we can free ourselves. Um, and it felt like a big enough question to be a book. And I knew nothing about writing books, except I'd read many, many books. Um, 
And so I, because I didn't have my business going on, I had this time and space. So I wrote a book proposal and I pitched it. Well, I didn't actually pitch it. I wrote the book proposal and then um, my husband went to school with somebody who was a literary agent, but I thought she was uh, an agent for novelists. So I certainly wasn't pitching her at all. Um, but he said, do you mind having a look to give her some pointers before she pitches it to some people? And she's like, yeah, sure. So we sent it to her. And the next day she phoned me up. She said, I want to sell it for you. Can I represent you? And I was like, <laughs> what? There's me with my baby brain and not even back off maternity leave. Okay. And then she said, who's your dream publisher? And at that point I said, hey, house. Because I was thinking, this is a mind, body, spirit book. They're the big guys. I want to go with them. And I came back with a book deal with Hay House. And I just couldn't believe it. Um, and then I had a few months to write the book. And that's when it all started to go wrong. <laughs> because I was still stuck in my very um, strategic mindset and trying to write the book on an Excel chart, basically. Like, this idea goes in this chapter and this goes here and this goes here. And trying to write some stuff that every sentence I wrote was just garbage. And I was like, this is not going to become a book. And it was so hard. And then, um, well, the whole story is in the way of the fearless writer, but my husband said, you need a change of scene, bought me a ticket to Costa Rica <laughs> and it, it all changed. But I, I really don't want to give the impression that you have to go to Costa Rica for that to happen. I think really just what it, ha what it did was allow me to realize that writing isn't something that you can control as a human being, you know, you, you're not in charge of, of everything, how it comes out, how it does in the world, any of that. And that life is much more interesting when you kind of open up to the power of the universe and, and co-create something. Um, and so that, that, that's really how I got into writing. And then, and what's interesting for me about that first book, Freedom Seeker, was that it, it really, I wrote myself free writing that book. I figured it out and I, reorganized my life, realized how much I love writing. And I was like, I want to do this. I want to write books. And then I was ready to start bringing my Japanese experience into it. And then my second book, Wabi Sabi, is, has, has been a, a big bestseller. It's been amazing. I've, I've been blown away by the response to it. I think part of it has been timing for sure um, with all that's been going on in the world in the last four years, but um, I, there, it, until then, there was never really a time to to bring it in to doing what you love, and then it all made sense. So. Okay, I realise we are halfway through this interview, and I've not asked you a single question on my list, so I am going to <laughs> roll through the questions now. So we are going to talk about the way of the fearless writer, and so I wondered if you could tell me, um, I guess, a couple of things. One, what do you think the most common fears writers have are and two are there any practices or things that you think writers should be doing in order to get over them and to become fearless i think it's a really important question um because you said the most common fears and i think this is we all i don't know a single writer that doesn't have fears connected to writing and i interviewed over well surveyed over a thousand writers when I was writing the way of the fearless writer and every single one of them had some kind of fear connected to the writing but almost all of them when you look at it are connected to the results or impact of our work in the outside world we are fearful about how our work will be received and by association how we will be received 
Um, these days, in terms of if you talk about books, for example, of course, that often comes down to judgmental metrics like sales figures, prizes, reviews, things like that. But also when we share something really personal, there's this deep, deep fear that we will be rejected as human beings. Of course, what actually happens often is that people see their own experience in our words and they feel seen, they feel less alone, like at last somebody who understands me and the opposite of rejection happens when we do that. Um, and I don't think, um, I don't think we can know that until we try it and we share our words and someone who needed to read them, reads them and then we see. Um, but if we don't write them, we never know that. And often that fear of the impact of, of how something will be received in the outside world is so great it stops us writing anything in the first place and the only thing you can be sure about is if you never write anything you're never going to get judged right but that's you miss all of the amazing benefits and opportunities that come from connecting with your creative self and putting what's in your head and heart onto paper I think it's also true that there's not a book in the world that is for everyone and that is something that you have to accept it's the same with social media with you know people's personality out there's nothing that is for everybody that's part of the joy and the challenge of being human I think and there is definitely an element of having to accept that if you want to share your words with the world there will always be somebody who doesn't like what you've written and the question is does that matter to you and for me the people who don't like what I write are not the people I'm writing for so and that has made a huge difference to me I think it's really interesting because um, a lot of writers tend to be the kids who are on the periphery and who have grown up being judged and have grown up struggling to make friends and have grown up as the weird one or the quirky one or the one who sat in the library at lunch because she had no friends. I'm not telling you uh, that was me or anything, but that was definitely me. So like it's really. And so I think what happens is it forms two types of people. You get the first type of person who ends up crushed by that and trying to conform to society. Um, and therefore, they have to go through a journey of reawakening and finding who they are and finding that inner child and that inner creative spirit. And then you get the other type of person who builds a hard shell and does not give a fuck what anybody thinks about anything. And that comes with its own set of problems and you can end up being quite marmite and like love hate but actually I honestly feel like if we lean into the thing that is the most us we become the best version of ourselves but that is hard it is hard to do that because we do live in a world where everyone's going to judge you for the car that you drive, the wage that you earn, the house that you buy, the the shit that doesn't matter that is in your house. What's that famous quote that uh, some probably some guy said, but you know that you buy things to impress people that you don't like, and you know there's some quote that goes along those lines, and I just think that depicts everything that we are in this society. But yeah, I do feel like the moment we embrace our uniqueness, that is when we become the best writer we can be. Absolutely. 100%. And there's so many things I want to respond to there. The one, the one about all the things 
we we will be judged by our car and our house. But that's if we allow ourselves to be. Right. People because can, you judgment know, it, is, is somebody else's opinion. And that like the only thing to me, the only thing that matters is my opinion. <laughs> if honestly, I'm proud of my book, yeah. then, then it doesn't matter. But like, I understand also that not everybody derives value or worth from their own self-judgment, if that makes sense. And also our own inner judgments can be wacky and, and off kilter because of how we have been brought up. So like really what we're talking about is self-love maybe. Completely. And I think that that is one of the, the, the biggest pieces of work as a writer that we have to do as human beings. We have to come to trust our own opinion. We have to, there is no other way. Because otherwise you just get battered by the many, many more people outside in the world who have things to say about what you do and how you live and all those things. And so you can't stop that because it just goes can't. on and on and on. So yeah. you just have to find a way to ignore it. And people keep creating new social media channels to give you access to that information of what everyone thinks yeah. about you. But also I think it's true to say that other people spend a lot less time thinking about us than we think yes. we do. They do. Yes, like yes. We, they're really not going around thinking, oh, Sasha's got, you know, pink trousers on today. Yeah. Not sure about that. But they, <laughs> they really aren't. And I think that's those things are all things that we can work on and think about and do. But it's so interesting what you're saying about the hard shell, because I, I think that's very true. I think that people who um, it's very often the creatives who, as you say, grow up on the periphery, even live on the periphery. But that's where everything interesting happens. Yeah. And it's from there that you can see everything. You don't want to be in the middle of it all, completely buried in everything else of society. It's really important to, you know, you need, you need to go in sometimes to understand it, but, but it is on the edge where everything interesting happens, where everything new comes from and where people can have their own opinions because they're not, completely influenced by everyone else. So that's a really good thing. I think the problem with the hard shell is that if nothing can get in, nothing can get out. And so it, even if that's how we have um, made ourselves feel safe in the world, which is totally fine, if that's what we've had to do. If you genuinely want to write the best thing that you can write, and by best, I don't mean the best sentences. I mean, like the most important things that you have to say in the world. You have to find a way of dissolving that shell for long enough to let that out. And then you can put your shell back again if that helps you. But in the writing process, you cannot write through a shell. And I think that's why it's so important to create a sacred writing practice and a sacred writing space and understand that your work doesn't get shared with another human being until you are ready for it and you decide it can and you decide who it goes to so you have that um you, there's a lot more safety there that you can create than i think we think there is and the how you know going writing sitting at your writing desk and writing is not the same as having to go and do a public speaking gig or walk into a room full of people you don't have to be the same person as you are when you're just protecting yourself in the world right Absolutely. And you talk about best there, which is one of my favorite words. <laughs> but you know, In the book, it's a great segue because in the book, you talk about failure and success and desirelessness. And I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about them and the mindset like towards them and how we can have a healthier, pro a healthier approach to like failure and success. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's so strange when you think about it, how 
we become so fixated on particular outcomes for things ourselves for things that we make out in the world when like when so much has to happen for even for you and me to meet at a train station at a certain time right how many things have to come together and have to have happened in the years gone past in order for that particular thing to be possible right so why do we think as one human being that we could possibly completely control the outcome of something out in the world when so many other people and other things are involved it's crazy and yet that's that's what we do and it's kind of a recipe for madness really so do um, you believe in luck i well i i think um I think some of these things are semantics. I think there is definitely, if you are open and listening and ready and um, bring in the factor of timing and all of these things, then I, I do think there is something to do with luck. Definitely. I don't know what I'd, it's difficult to put sometimes I think to say, this particular word is exactly what I mean, but absolutely yeah. serendipity has been a huge part of my entire journey um, and some of those things which happened I might not know that something was serendipitous until 10 years after it happened and then I look back and go oh my goodness if I hadn't met that person then all these things 10 years later wouldn't have happened right so there's this kind of web at work for sure I don't know what that is but um, I definitely believe in that but I also think that's not just something that we sit around on the sofa and wait for it to happen. That's because I'm out in the world doing stuff, asking questions, looking, listening. Um, and so I think it's, it's, it's some thing between how we are connected with everything else in, in the universe. Um, so, so it's just when you think about all of that and you just take one example of something that you might think, oh, I was lucky or that was serendipitous and you think of all the threads that have to come together to make that, then you, then you realize it's kind of, it is kind of crazy to go, I want this book to do this particular thing by this particular date when actually for that to happen, other people have to be involved. It's not just me saying I will have written 10 sentences by the end of the day, right? There's, and so so that's like a recipe for pain to believe in that. So I think, it, and by that, I don't mean that we can't strategize and plan and put effort in and stuff. Definitely, that's the business part of me does all that. Um, but at the writing desk, there is just no space for that whatsoever. And there is not a single occasion in my writing life, for sure, when thinking about how my writing is going to do in the world has helped me. Right. Not one. And so I have learned to say, you know, there are times, of course, I worry or, or just think about how something is going to be received or whatever. But I'm never doing that when I'm up at five o'clock in the morning writing by candlelight thinking about whatever I'm thinking about, you know. Mm, mm. I am. Um, I now try to consider what, so I don't believe in luck. That's, that's the first thing I ha I am vehemently against the concept of luck. I believe that we work and set up opportunities and you're right. Maybe that sounds like semantics, but it helps me to think that I can create opportunities for myself mm. 
because otherwise I feel like everything is hopeless. And if I just rely oh, on yeah. like, you know, I, 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 but I know that's really controversial because lots of people do believe in luck. And I'm like, that's okay because that's your frame and that's your lens and how you like see the world. So for me, it's like, how do like, I truly believe that yes. Okay. Maybe lots of serendipitous things, but you, you ask the questions, you put yourself yes. in those situations, you put yourself in those situations. And so I think that you created like that life and that, like that makes, perhaps I'm just a control freak. <laughs> I am definitely a control freak. But um, the other thing that I was going to say is that I completely agree about that trying to determine the outcome Mm. before you have even finished the product or the book, however you want to term it. And so for me now, um, I have a a strengths coach, like a business coach, and I am trying very hard to look at each book that I write and control the only thing that I can control, which is to make it the best book that I personally with my voice can make. And that is the win. That is the win that I'm trying to get out of this book. And whatever happens once it gets released happens. And that's not the bit that I try and control anymore. But that's been a really hard mindset shift for me because I am somebody who's very results oriented, very like, you know, success driven or or money driven, not, not for the sake of money, but for what it can provide to my son or the life that I can give him or the life that I can help my mom when she's old and needs care or, you know, that kind of stuff. So, um, but it's a much healthier mindset for me now to focus on how can I make this book? How can this book be the best book that I can write in this moment. And that is like the goal and the win and the thing like, yeah, I just completely agree with what you're saying. It's like a much healthier mindset for me. It is. And I think it's helpful to think, um, to split out the writing of the book and your own efforts to get the book into the hands of the people that you want to read that book or that you think would benefit in some way from reading that book. And when I talk about desirelessness in The Way of the Fearless Writer, I don't for one second think that we should write a book and let go of it and never talk about it. I think as authors, that's part of the job these days. You know, I'm like, I spent a year, five years, 10 years of my life gathering this information for you, putting it together in the absolute best way I can, because I think this will change your life. So please read it. Like, please (laughs) read it. And, you know, and people, we write, especially I write nonfiction self-help books. I write them because I think they can help people with particular challenges that they're experiencing in the world. And it's a disservice to them if I don't tell them about it. And so I absolutely make a plan and I keep talking about my books a lot. I, what, one thing actually that frustrates me quite a lot, um, because I do, um, I have a book proposal masterclass. And I help people to put together proposals for nonfiction books and get them out in the world and get book deals. And there is um, nothing that drives me more crazy than somebody who puts all that effort in and then never talks about it. And it, like, I'm looking at their Instagram feed on the day their book comes out and there's nothing. There's a picture of their dog on their breakfast. And I'm like, hello, what are you doing? You, you are trying to help these people who are not just going to stumble across your book. A few people will, but that's part of the job for sure. And so it, that is, of course, the more, the more books we sell, the more whatever it is that generates income allows us to do more of the thing we love. And if we're good at it and it helps people, it means we can help more people. So I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't say that none of that matters. All I'm saying is that it doesn't have a place at the writing desk yeah, when you're yeah. writing your books. And so I think it's good to have your writer hat on and then to have your business hat on and see how your business, your writing can 
serve other people and serve the life that you want to live because you know it there's just one and and just to go back to the luck thing i think it another thing that's really important to think about is that people's personal faith and religious ideas and beliefs have an impact on what they think about things like that you know whether they think there's one grand plan for all of us and all of that um, and i think we can have a discussion about your own role in determining your life without getting into any of that because you can uh, your creativity exists regardless of your beliefs and how you tap into it and what you um what you do with your every day which is what builds your life is is up to you and you can do that regardless of whether you believe there is a big plan or and when i say luck i don't mean the lottery luck i'm talking more about a an element that we do not control and you know yeah yeah so so we've talked around a lot about being free at the desk and i think this is so important and again it's like something that uh, i've spoken about a couple of times over um, a few podcast recordings in the last two or three weeks because uh my friend and i have both realized that in the last few months we have reconnected with our inner child and for the first time ever i am because i'm starting a new pen name there's no expectation there's no judgment and there's nobody looking which means i have written the exact book that i want to write and i wrote it faster and i personally feel like it's better than anything else i've written um but i think and that's like the 18th or 19th book I've written. And true, it's possibly, and that's nonfiction aside. So I'm not talking about nonfiction, but I think it's genuinely the most honest fiction book I've ever written. And so I think a lot of us get caught up in trying to write what we think we should write or what we think the market wants. And there's some, there's some, um, uh, benefit to that if you are trying to write to reader in order to do a job to make some money to do a certain thing. But I also think that at some point we all want to just write that creative thing that's in our soul um so why do you think it is so hard for us to write our truth and like how what what can we do to reconnect with that inner child and to reconnect with the thing that our soul really wants us to write and to be free enough at the desk how do we do that i love this question i don't <laughs> think the market knows what it wants until it gets it and that we as authors can't predict what the market's going to want because of that, you know. And if you're writing a, a book proposal, a really important part of it is to put in the market. Like, where is this book? What is the market for this book? And where does it fit in the context of all the other books in the world? That's really important because publisher is very interested in numbers and wants to run the numbers to see how many books they think they can sell. What is, you know, how are books that are in this kind of book, how are they doing? Um, and that's how they will come up with the figure that they will offer you for an advance and for royalties based on how many books they think they can sell. So that the market isn't irrelevant, but it's there, there's no point. I don't understand why you would want to spend your days doing the heart and soul work that is writing a book and all that it involves to write a book that is because you think somebody one day might want that book. It's so, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense from a, um, it, it, from a creative point of view, 
the the joy is in extracting what is in you and putting it on the page. And that is where a reader is going to feel the connection. It's so interesting that you had that experience by simply changing your name and you use the word should there. And the question, I think it's so true. Like we, what the writer we think we should be, where does that should come from? Like who, and you know, conditioning, parents, teachers, societal norms, all of that stuff. But it's, what is it that makes us think that it comes back to this question that that is more important than what we want to write? And we're, you know, we're the authors. And I think you're absolutely onto something with your title of rebel author, because whether we do it loudly or quietly, we have to rebel against so much yeah. to author a book. We have to rebel against all expectations of who we should be, what we should write, how we should spend our time, you know, how we should earn a living. And those expectations might also be our own that we have to rebel against, never mind all the ones from, from out in the world. But when it comes down to it, what does it have to do with anyone else? It's your life. Do what you want with it. It's your creativity. Do what you want with it. And like we are, seem to be waiting for somebody else's permission when you can just crack on, change name and there's your book, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's And it's funny because in the background, I am... I never realized that I needed to write a book about rebellion, but I absolutely need to write the book. Like, and and (laughs) even though I I don't believe in luck, there was definitely some serendipitous stuff going on here because I didn't choose rebel author branding. Like my audience came up with it. um, And it was kind of suggested that that's what, that's how they saw me. And so that's why I took the the moniker and, and how the name came. And the more I intellect on what rebellion is the more i talk to people about their rebellions the more i see just how fucking vitally important it is to our society change comes from rebellion yes but i also think that at the heart of rebellion is about finding joy we rebel because we are unhappy and we Mm -hmm. want a change and we want to go back and find our joy and so like for all those reasons i have to write this book um and where's the rebellion come from it comes from the edges those that comes from the outside to attack what isn't working on the inside and it's interesting because it is a very powerful strong word but you I don't think you have to be aggressive to rebel it's just about making different choices or questioning things and I don't think that you can live a flourishing creative life without questioning things and going against the the societal norms because the majority of people aren't doing that Yes. So yeah. many people are unhappy and then they're, they're not exploring their creativity. There's an insane number of people in America, according to some very big surveys, who want to write a book and are not writing a book. Well, why aren't they writing a book? They're not writing a book for lots of reasons, all related to the things that we've talked about today. Yeah. And in yeah. order to change that and write that book, they have to rebel against what they've been told, what they know, what they think about themselves and all of that. So it's a really, I really hope you write that book. I am going to. Important. enough, I considered pitching it uh, as a proposal because it felt all the books that I write that are nonfiction are very craft. Uh, they're very niche topics, but this felt more like a, like a, it would appeal to a wider audience. So I have considered like pitching it as a proposal, but yeah. also I don't, uh, the other part of me is like, I don't want to give up my rights. 
but but you know I don't know you don't what do you mean give up your rights you don't give up your rights you still own the rights oh yeah but you license them for however many years and then you get like anyway this is not this is I will talk to you about trad stuff outside the podcast you should Um, join my book proposal masterclass in February (laughs) let's get you that book deal honestly it's it's very it's very interesting that that seems like a very mainstream book to me in a good yes, way. Yes, that's, that's why I have considered pitching it because it feels like a much more mainstream book than yeah. anything that I've written. And there's a few goals that I have connected to that book that I think would work, but I don't want to talk about that on air. Um, okay, which is a fantastic segue because this is the Rebel Author Podcast. Mm-hmm. So tell everyone about a time you unleashed your inner rebel. I think I've really already shared it um in that is how I, I live my life I think quitting my job to set up do what you love my company 12 years ago when I had no idea about technology no idea what you know nobody was doing it everyone was saying to me what what are you talking about you're crazy to do it but also when I talked about doing what you love I can't tell you how many people were like started sentences with yeah but yeah but I've got a mortgage yeah, but my husband won't like it. Yeah, but I have to feed my children, whatever. And to the point where I have heard so many excuses over over the years, I've started to wonder, like, why is it we spend so much energy trying to be miserable? I don't understand it. Like, really, that's in the first response for so many years. It's completely changed. I wouldn't say completely changed. It's changed a lot in the last few years, especially since the pandemic. Um, and with technology making it much more normal, to go on and learn about things that aren't academic things. And that is fantastic. But um, I think my whole way of life and earning money has been quietly rebellious. My parents have been amazingly supportive of my journey, but I think there've been moments of, of real anxiety for them because they wanted me to follow the path that I was planning to. And because it was, it was stable and safe. And it, although it's obviously the last few years have showed us it wasn't necessarily safe. Um, and I think you've got, you know, you're a lot more safe when you're using your own brain to make things happen and rather than relying on a paycheck from someone else. That's just my, you know, my feeling at the moment. Um, but going against what's expected and challenging the status quo um, and inspiring people, you know, people to ask questions instead of just accepting everything that is thrown at them is, is a fun way to live. I completely agree. Thank you so much. Oh, I have to tell, oh, Sasha, I have to tell you, my my husband said this to me the other day and I never felt more seen. He called me a rebel with a dictionary. (laughs) Oh my God, that's amazing. (laughs) That's why I married you. (laughs) That is fantastic. Oh my God. I am actually going to tell my wife that later on because I think that is amazing. You need a t-shirt with that on. Yes. Um, tell everyone where they can find out more about you, your books, and anything else that you would like to add. Uh, well, if you're interested in writing, I'd really encourage you to read The Way of the Fearless Writer, which is my new book on writing, uh, which is a quietly rebellious way of approaching the creative process. Um, and I have just launched the Fearless Writer podcast. So every week, um, every Tuesday from now until the end of the year, um, you can find that on iTunes, Spotify, on my website, bethkempton.com forward slash podcast. And there is an exercise every week for you to try as well. So it's lots of fun. I'm on Instagram at Beth Kempton and all of my online courses are at do what you love for life.com. 
amazing. I'll make sure all those links are in the show notes. And a big thank you, of course, to all of the listeners, uh, all of the show's listeners and all of the show's patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. I'm Sasha Black. You are listening to Beth Kempton and this was the Rebel Author Podcast. Next week, I'm going to be joined by returning guest Cassie Newell. Last time she turned the tables on me and this time I'm putting her to the uh, test with lots of questions about mindset uh, for indie authors. So join me next week for that. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.